Welcome, everybody, to this Edge of Mind podcast, where my guest today is the noted author and esteemed spiritual director of the Sukha City Foundation, Lama Paul Dendroma. We begin a rich conversation about the transplantation of Buddhism to the West. What is the state of union concerning Buddhism here in America and the core challenges in cultural translation? How does one find an authentic teacher? And what are the warning signs to look for to avoid corrupt teachers? Our conversation turns to the role of psychotherapy on the path and the danger of blind spots, the lingering problem of patriarchy, power abuse, and other common traps that frequently ensnare teachers. And what exactly is spiritual counseling? How does it differ from therapy? What constitutes outer and inner obstacles on the path? And how can we avoid things like spiritual bypassing? Lama Paulden is an expert in the Yidam practice or deity yoga, especially the female Buddha Tara. Is Tara inside of us, outside of us, or both? What role does Tara play in the modern world? Is the West even ready for the advanced spiritual technologies of Tantra? The conversation turns to the role of the imaginal in the importance of visualization and feelingization. Do modern meditative technologies like brain entrainment have an authentic place on the path? And what about psychedelics? Lama Paulden talks about idiot devotion and the promise and peril of surrendering on the path. She offers valuable advice specifically for female practitioners and things to look out for when working with a teacher. Where do you go to engage in genuine and safe spiritual practice? See for yourself why Lama Paulden is such a respected teacher and a real protector of the Dharma in this challenging age. Hey, everybody. Andrew Holacek here. Welcome to this Edge of Mind podcast, um, where I have a really special guest today, Lama Paulin Doma, who I've known really for decades. Um, so as usual, I will read a short um, biography of this remarkable individual, and then we're going to dive into, I, I'm sure, a really host of wonderfully rich topics. So Lama Paulin Doma is the founder and senior Lama of Sukha City Foundation, the Tibetan Buddhist Center, and the Shankpa and Kagyu lineages of Tibetan Buddhism. With gratitude to her gurus, Lama Paulin transmits, trains, and mentors students and clients passing on the teachings and practices that enable one to reach complete awakening. She has a lifelong interest in comparative mysticism and interspirituality. Lama Paulin also worked for years as a licensed psychotherapist. In addition to teaching, now does spiritual counseling at the intersection of the spirituality of spirituality and psychology. Her latest book, Love on Every Breath, is on the practice of Tonglen, and it's a wonderful rendering of this ancient practice, of bringing it into kind of contemporary formats where we can appreciate its depth and nuance. And so, Alama Paulden, so delightful to see you again. It, it's really, it's been a long time since we've actually connected in person, so to speak. So it's a delight uh, to spend some time with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, we could start a little bit with the, with the, the amazing lineage that, that you derive from and the fact that we study together side by side at the feet of one of our uh, main principal gurus, you know, Lama Tsultram, um, Kempo Tsultram Gamsa Rinpoche. But tell us a little bit, for starters, about your amazing relationship with really the giants of, of Tibetan Buddhism and uh, amazing pioneers who started to bring this uh, ancient uh, Eastern tradition into the modern West. Yeah, my uh, root teacher, my primary teacher was Kala Rinpoche, 
who uh, has passed away now several decades, but um, I was fortunate to study with him a lot in Darjeeling in the Himalayan foothills. And he was the first person to start three-year retreats in the West. So I was very fortunate to do a three-year retreat under him that was um, under the auspices of his center in British Columbia. And uh, yeah, I mean, he was a great Mahamudra master as well as being considered one of the top uh, masters of the six yogas of Naropa, of Sukha City, and of Naguma. Right. And he passed on to us both the Shampa and Kagyu traditions. So the Kagyu is a very well-known Tibetan tradition, and Milarepa is its most famous uh, yogi that has a whole line of enlightened masters. And the Shampa tradition was very quiet. It was mostly practiced behind the scenes in Tibet by great masters of all the lineages. And he was the primary lineage holder of that. And that lineage traces back to a whole host of gurus in India in the 11th, 12th century. But the primary were two women who were both from Kashmir, Naguma and Sukha City. So that's a very unusual lineage that most of all the teachings come from two women. Yeah, it's spectacular. And thank you for situating it that way, because people listening may wonder, well, you know, how is it different? Maybe you could say a little bit more about that. How is it different from um, other schools in, in, in the Kagyu tradition? Well, it's, um, and it really was its own school that kind of at some point got subsumed into the Kagyu or protected by it or something. But it was unique because outside of the Naropa tradition, which is in the Kagyu, it's the only um, lineage that has its own six yogic practices, the six dharmas, so which include the fierce inner heat and the dream yoga and et cetera. And so both Sukha City and Naguma each had their own teachings and transmissions of the six yogas, as well as a whole complete path of foundational practices and yidam practices and, and other practices. So this makes it very, very rich. And it's unique in the in that it's it's um the practices are all like very pith essence. There's not a lot of words with it. They're very straight and to the point. So the, and they were both enlightened women, fully enlightened women who uh, passed on, but they didn't, there's not a lot of extensive uh, ritual and words and all that kind of thing. It's a very pith essence lineage. Well, you know, I, I'm sure you've heard the say, the more advanced the teaching gets, um, the simpler it is and the less there is to say, right? Until you basically just rest on absolute silence. But before we get in, into some of these uh, wonderful nuances, uh, you mentioned in turn Yadam. I want to explain that and unpack that um, in the listeners, uh, with our listeners in a little bit using the, the medium of Tara, who you're such an expert in. But with your permission, um, maybe let's start a little bit wide. Um, broad scope, and then kind of funnel down to some of the areas that, boy, you have a tremendous uh, area of expertise. And what one is, for starters, you you are uniquely situated, not only as, as, a, as a female uh, lineage holder of these amazing teachings, um, but also you've been around for a, a long time, um, and you've seen the, the promise and the peril of the transplantation, uh, translation of the Dharma, especially uh, Tibetan 
um, Buddhism into the Western milieu. And so perhaps um, from your perspective, give us a little bit of your assessment of the state of the union in American Buddhism these days and, and what you've seen over the decades of your work, what, what excites you, what concerns you, and just barely, generally the basic um, kind of environment gestalt of what you see. Well, and I've had, uh, you know, close friends involved with Theravadan and Zen Buddhism. So I've also been watching what happened with them. In fact, even before I came to Kalarimsha, I had studied with one of the Zen teachers who was a student of Suzuki Roshi. So I've kind of watched them unfold too. I think now speaking from the, within the Tibetan tradition, the great masters who really started bringing um, Vajrayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism to the West in the seventies were such giants. They, you know, most of them had done decades of retreat in mountain caves and retreat centers and were just, amazing embodiments of wisdom and compassion. There was so much depth of their understanding and so much compassion that it just really radiated out of them. And so they did an amazing job in the beginning and then over these decades of planting the seeds in the West. And really so much has sprung up from these seeds. It's kind of amazing because Tibetan Buddhism is, you know, very strange from a Western point of view until you get more deeply into it. But it's it's amazing that so many people have taken to it. And then, you know, generations of other younger teachers uh, have come over and Western teachers have been trained both in three-year retreats and elsewhere. And so I think, you know, a really good start has been made a, a really good initial planting of the dharma here and you know our generation you're my generation andrew you know a lot of us there was a lot of spiritual interest so we'll see with the upcoming generations you know how much spiritual interest there is for them and you know if if we can really unpack these traditions enough to to bring the relevancy of it to modern day America, you know, in the, for the youth. I know that in a lot of the centers, a lot of the people who are involved are really aging now and, you know, um, new young people are coming, but, you know, we'll really see in the next 10 to 20 years, what unfolds and if it continues to take root and really mature and grow. And I think empowering Younger teachers is one of the keys to this. And I actually um, empowered my successor, who you know, Lama Dindra, Wonderful. You know, about four years ago. And she's a generation um, behind me. And so I think, you know, a lot's going to be in, in their hands at this point in terms of uh, continuing the work, and also with the younger Tibetan teachers who are still teaching, you know, of which we have quite a few. I think Zen came to this country the, in the earliest; it was the first to come here. So they're they're more already into second generation teachers. You know, they are sort of a generation ahead of Tibetan Buddhism. And the Theravadan tradition got started um, a little bit before the Tibetan tradition really got started. 
So they're a little further along too. And we've also had a lot more Tibetans come over, which I think has been a huge blessing, but it it also may have been um, a cause for us to be a little slower in terms of completely translating the tradition for the West. And I'm curious along with what you just said, let's talk a little bit more about this because there are different types of translation. We have obviously liturgical translations, taking the text and bringing them into our language. But perhaps um, in the way you and I roll, the the invitation, the challenge of um, cultural translation. How right. do we how do we take this stuff? Like you mentioned, I mean, if you want bells and whistles, man, is there any tradition that has more bells and whistles than Tibetan Buddhism? Ah, like amazing. And so, on one level, it can be quite alluring, inviting. On another level, it can be like really off putting. Um, so what do you see, uh, both as, in your role as, as a cultural translator, if I can append that label to you, um, what do you see as, as successes and failures of this translation? Or is it too early to say? Should we be more patient? Well, I think that the translation culturally is happening. And I think it's very much, even though to some extent, Trumpa Rinpoche really got that started, the cultural translation, and then, you know, teachers, Western teachers after him in his lineage, and as, for example, Pema Chodron or yourself, and um, and then uh, in all the other traditions as well. But I think, so I think a lot has been done, but I think there's a lot more to do. I think we're in the middle of it. Mm. I think that Vajrayana Buddhism is so in-depth and there's so much to it that even to begin to understand what's all there in order to unpack it is a huge undertaking because a lot of what happens in the tradition happens in your own direct experience. The practices reveal their truths to you as you practice them. So there's, like you said, there's liturgical translation and there's translation of philosophical texts and a huge amount of actual translation has happened, you know, for books and texts and an oral translation of Tibetan teachers' teachings. But I think far less has happened in terms of really profoundly unpacking what these teachings and practices are really about. because. And some of that just has to happen within the individual because it is self-revealing as you do the practice. But some of it can also be communicated by people that are Westerners that have done the practices over decades and from their own experience can share, you know, what this has meant to them or what they've discovered through the whole process. And that's what I've been in the process of doing and so I think it's very much an ongoing situation. I think there's a lot more to come. You know, this is this 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 is fantastically important because, you know, the the Vajrayana slash Tantra. I mean, this is virtually synonymous with Tibetan Buddhism, and it's just it's such a tradition of of power and impact and transformative capacity. But but I mean, on one level. I mean, is the West ready for Tantra? I mean, do do we have the capacities to deal with this kind of thermonuclear spiritual energy? Um, as I sometimes say, will it will it light us up or will it burn us up? So talk to us a little bit about, you know, this is 
I'm a retired doc. And so I, I used to write thousands of prescriptions and, and a lot of them were prescription strength meds, right? And so I look at Vajrayana Tantra as prescription strength spirituality. And so I, I don't want to stretch these metaphors too far, but right, should it, should we be more interested in over-the-counter approaches? Um, how uh, adaptable can we make something like the Tantra and the Vajrayana before we kind of edit it out, out of its power framework? So I guess the question is, do you think that the West is truly ready to incorporate the, the magic and the majesty of these teachings? Or are we just too impatient, too facile, rushing to the goodies? You know, it's just so sexy to do these esoteric practices. But I think sometimes we we lose the preparation and sometimes we can get in trouble. So I'm curious what your yeah. rendering of that is. Yeah. Well, I think it's really primarily an individual question, you know, and I think it also depends on how well people are prepared with the teachings to go into further depth. And if they want to go into further depth, of course, that's up to the individual. But I think there needs to be a lot of foundation, you know, in and Vajrayana has not always been so good in the West in giving people a really adequate foundation. So I think that's really, really important. And key to this is not only all the essential Buddhist teachings, which are across all the different Buddhist traditions in the world, the a core understanding of the essential teachings that Buddha taught, but also a huge base in loving kindness and compassion, which, you know, as they say, you know, in Dzogchen, one of the, you know, preeminent practices of um, Tibetan Buddhism, there's two wings to the bird, compassion and wisdom. And, you know, a lot of times, um, people don't necessarily understand how important loving kindness and compassion are, both for the self and for others and how we truly are interconnected with everything that is, all other beings and everything that is. And this necessitates a tremendous amount of kindness and compassion. And so I think the fundamental level that even as human beings, we're not going to survive unless we learn to cooperate together, unless we learn to live in harmony and actually move forward with decisions and actions that we need to do in order to uh, address the challenges facing us as human beings. That's like core level. And like, so this core level of human uh, maturity and wisdom of simply really deeply understanding the interconnectedness and how much you know um, understanding is needed to really live as a as a species together, you know, that's like foundational. And I think that's part of what people really need to know and understand in terms of doing foundations of Buddhism. And how do we apply the principles of Buddhism to ourselves and then to our interactions with others so that we um, are able to live in harmony? And then, you know, with a really strong basis of training in the essentials and in loving kindness and compassion and what we call in the Tibetan tradition, bodhicitta, um, you know, the aspiration to awaken on behalf of all sentient beings with a strong basis and all of that, then I think that if people are so inclined, 
then that shows that they're ready, you know, to go on to the more advanced stages of Tantra. And it's so powerfully transformative that I would love to see it do well in the West because for those people who are interested and do have a strong foundation, you know, through their center or their life path or whatever, then it's remarkable how, you know, how helpful it can be. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. If you have the proper holding environment, you know, then it, it's it's jet fuel, right? But but talk to us a little bit about, well, so someone comes to you, I, I get these questions um, with some regularity. Someone comes to you, they're intrigued about the, the Tantra, the Vajrayana. Um, how do you counsel them? I mean, where where do you recommend they go? And also very closely connected to this question is, is the perennial question of, you know, how do you find the right teacher, right? So can you talk to us a little bit about the the uh, promise and peril of both of those? How do you get in to this path safely? How do you find a, a, an appropriate teacher? Um, because again, if it's done properly, whoa, there's tremendous potential here. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, it depends. Either um, I'll, I direct people to the center I founded, which I'll talk about what happens with that in a minute. Or if, you know, if, if that, isn't what people are interested in. I'll advise them to really go and take teachings at different places and from different teachers to see what really resonates in their heart. Um, I actually was led to Kalarimpshe through my prayers to Mary, which is kind of interesting. I was praying to Mary to meet my teacher. And I had been studying in Sufism and mystical Christianity and Zen and was really studying interspirituality way back in my teens and early 20s. And then I was praying to Mary and got led to my teacher. But I I the reason I wasn't even a Buddhist at the time, but I knew when I saw Kalarimpshe within about five minutes, I knew he was my teacher. Mm. And that's, you know, that's a little unusual to know so definitively so quickly. But I think if people go and take teachers, teachings from different teachers, and really feel if there's a resonance there with that person. So for me, it was more the person than the tradition. And then through that, you know, I moved to the Himalayas and became, you know, deeply involved in study and receiving transmission and meeting many of the uh, Tibetan masters. And then I developed a huge appreciation for the tradition. So I think people need to really learn to trust their own heart their own inner knowing their own inner gut feeling you know and at our center what i did was i started um a series of programs so that people can go through a step-by-step process that is a holding environment a safe clean wholesome holding environment and that's the other thing there's been so many problems with different centers in terms of um uh, sexual activity or different kinds of problems, you know, with money or whatever, that people have to be careful when they, you know, go to teachers to really find out what's really going on. And if they feel, al- you know, aligned in terms of their integrity and ethics. But at Suka City Foundation, so we have different levels of programs. So you can take a foundational program. Uh, which we call Dharma training program. And 
get a lot of foundation in in fundamental dharma and go quite quite deeply and there's both study and practice and then there's another level we call bodhi level and you go further much more into the mahayana and into uh, starting into some of the emptiness teachings and a tremendous amount about mind training and love and compassion and these types of things and then and then um you know third level into tantra and and beyond and fourth level is uh, into further tantra etc so i started this graduated program because i was so grateful i'd been able to do three year retreat and i was just so i was just so love the three-year retreat. And I wanted to be able to bring those teachings to people that couldn't go away for three years or three and a half years to do retreat. Like I know you did too, but you know, many people can't do that, don't have the opportunity. And so I created these programs to give people the teachings in a systematic way and to be able to eventually do the three-year retreat practices, you know, in the third and fourth your uh, levels of the program. And I'm curious, I, this is, I was going to ask you this as a very prescient set of comments that I, I think is a fantastic cultural thing that you, cultural translation thing that you've done, but have you gotten blowback? I mean, from, from other teachers or other traditions, you don't need to name names, but I'm curious. I mean, are, are you comfortable in what you're doing and, and confident, or have you had some, some feedback from others who challenge what you're actually? Well, I've been, um, I've been really fortunate all the Tibetan lamas have 100% supported me. Even lamas from other lineages have come up to me and said, thank you so much for what you're doing and teaching the Shampa. You know, people from Nyingma lineage Rinpoche's have told me that. And uh, so I've gotten nothing but support really from the Tibetans. Mm-hmm. And many different Tibetan lamas have, um, you know, when Kalaram first started deeply training Westerners with three-year retreat, a lot of the Tibetans were scandalized because they had never, you know, given these teachings out that were so precious to them. Uh, you know, they'd never given them out to people from other countries or around the world. And they were a bit, you know, taken aback by the whole thing. But then many of them followed later after Kalaram And so, uh, yeah, so the lamas have been incredibly supportive, and they've also been really very, very supportive at, for me as a woman, you know, being a woman and everything. So I've been fortunate that way. That, uh, and I think it would have been given my personality, it would have been very hard for me if I what didn't have a hundred percent of so many high lamas support. But because by nature, I'm not a public person, I'm much more a contemplative. And I'm, you know, being really public and speaking publicly would not have been ego congruent with me, you know, and I, I, you know, I've kind of learned to to do it and stuff, but all that support made a huge difference for me. And I also had unconditional love from my parents. So I was very fortunate on that as well, and support from them. So you know, I think because definitely, as we know in our culture, men and women are still not equal in our culture and in cultures all over the world. So, although huge strides have been made, especially, you know, 
in Europe and in America, but there still isn't real equality. So it's it's you know it is somewhat of a vulnerable position, and for us to be holders of lineages where the our masters were such great giants that were so highly deeply realized that really somebody like me couldn't aspire to that level of realization in this lifetime. You know, I don't expect many of us will meet the same level as our teachers, but it's also amazing to me how much realization has happened for me and for my students. And I just take that as the power of the practices and the power of the teachings. Yeah, spot on. And this leads to, to um, a couple, I think, really intertwined and deeply important questions. One you're alluding to is that you know, our, our mutual friend Rita Gross wrote a, a really influential book called Buddhism After Patriarchy. Well, is it? Um, I'm, you know, this is another arena where you're uniquely situated. Boy, oh boy, the the the, the stain of patriarchy, right? Um, so can you speak a little bit about what, what you see uh, it, it, in terms of the the echoing the deleterious effects of patriarchy still being evident in a, in a tradition that is as we both know in the in the Tibetan world largely patriarchal um, as it is I think in almost any other tradition but maybe a little bit about how that has played out in your own life and experience and, and what you see is, is the current um, situation or state around all that. Well, I think in the West, even though you know, many people now, male and female, support equality of women, there's still a very unconscious bias toward listening to male voices. And that I've experienced that um, it, it's completely unconscious that men tend to listen to other men more than they do women. And, and so, and unless you really push yourself into that, you know, as a woman, then often your voice might not be heard. I think in terms of open discussion and listening, we've come a really long ways in the West. And I think, you know, there's another issue I want to bring up here, Andrew, because I think it's really related to this. And it, it may not seem immediately evident how, but I think it's linked. One problem that is still happening with the Tibetan culture in terms of Dharma is that their kind of modus operandi when there were difficult issues was to keep it private and secret. Mm. They don't like to talk about difficulties or problems. They like to kind of put it under the rug and just act like it's not happening. And that's, that's a cultural thing. It's obviously not a Buddhist thing, but it's a cultural thing. But it's very much in the patriarchy of Tibetans and in the patriarchy of Tibetan Buddhism. And some of the lamas have really jumped out of that and don't support that anymore. But there's still a lot of that where they won't really address certain problems. And I think in the West, um, you know, often it's been women who've been the brunt. Maybe that's why this is connecting up in my mind. Because women have often been the brunt of certain behavioral problems that, that men have or whatever. And and so uh I think learning to really have open discussions around issues of power and um dynamics and and perpetrator victim dynamics 
And things like this is really, really important for the centers to be able to meet these issues directly and really have great and deep open dialogues about them. And this is part of the shadow of the patriarchy that we still have with us. Yeah, totally. And this is also part of the challenge of the cultural translation, because you get these uh, reasonably well-intentioned people that come to the West. They're not perhaps is is comfortable or even aware of of the um the openness this characteristic of western approaches to to things like psychological problems sexuality secrecy and the like and so i think the, the cultural translation thing comes right into play there and so this ties in immediately to the other issue i wanted to bring i don't i don't mean to leave this but i think it's in conjunction with the next issue which is you know your incredible choice and decision to to um, get a degree in in psychology, to work as a, a, psycho, a psychotherapist, and now as a spiritual counselor, I'd be curious to see how you uh, centrifuge those two vectors out. But but maybe talk to us a little bit about that the the role of of spirit um, of psychology on the spiritual path, and at what point um, is it advisable for people who are stuck in in life situations to look outside the scope of traditional meditative practices? Because if you just keep going hard and fast on one particular track, it may not be the, the proper rupaya, the skillful means for dealing with it. So talk to us a little bit about your experience training and, and why, in fact, you did this, elected to do this in, in the psychological world, which I think is brilliant, by the way. Oh, thank you. Well, I did it because I didn't want my, um, you know, I went to three-year retreat when I was 30 years old. I hadn't really been working that much at that time. And then I came out and I didn't want my income to be dependent on Dharma. And I wasn't even thinking about teaching at that time anyway. I had no idea that I would end up, you know, teaching a lot and no um, real desire to do that. So I wanted to find, you know, a way to make an income. And to me, both Dharma and psychology are working with our minds, you know, and of course our body behavior and speech and all of that, but specifically with the mind. And so that's what interested me. And I had, since I was a teenager, I'd been interested in mind, psyche and um, spirit and the body, like working all those systems, you know, during the Vietnam war, I was, you know, working against the war. And I realized at some point when I was 15 years old, that the war was also inside of me and that I needed to bring that into peace inside of me. And so I began working on myself really directly. And that was my approach was with the body, with, with the psyche and with the spirit. So I've always had a feeling that these all need to work together. And so I went into and trained in therapy and it was really helpful for me actually later when I started the center and I was already a Lama at that point, but I wasn't really teaching. And cause Kala Rinpoche had made me a Lama a year after I came out of three year retreat, but you know, I teach if somebody asked me to, but I wasn't really giving programs or anything, but I trained with people who are chronically mentally ill. And that gave me a really good background because I saw the worst of what can happen psychologically and with mental um, health problems. So it really gave me a great background to know the depth of kind of, you know, some of the disorders and all of that. And what I've seen with students is that especially like we were talking before, when you get into depth tantra yidam practice, which I'll just say for a minute, Yidam has to do with meditating oneself as an awakened being in an awakened mandala. 
And some people call it deity practice, but I don't like that word because that that word has the wrong connotations. It's really awakened being such as Tara, an awakened being a Buddha, female Buddha. One has both an interaction with Tara's wisdom essence, uh, her awakened mind essence, and um, at some point becomes inseparable with Tara, with whoever the Yiram is. And one meditates oneself as, I said, as an awakened being, an awakened mandala. And this is very powerfully transformative in terms of identity and a whole slew of other issues. But what I found when people go into these in-depth practices, there's times when they really need therapy because it'll bring up, deep tantric practice brings up psychological issues. Totally. And, and, and so, I mean, theoretically, the, we're talking very briefly about the first of, of the six dharmas, you know, Chandali, the inner heat yogas, theoretically, you can use that those fires of, of emptiness to purify. But, but practically, I, I think your experience probably resonates with mine, that the fire, there's not enough fire, there's too much wood, not enough fire. And so instead of actually lighting up the things get stuffed out. And so uh, I, I love what you've done here. And if you could say just a little bit more around this, and, and maybe in the context of um, a, a kind of classic tantric maxim, you know, the greater the obstacles, the greater the opportunities. But along these lines, and maybe you can set this aside for just a second or, or bring it in, what what actually constitutes a, a, an obstacle? I mean, what what is a so-called a legitimate obstacle and and what different skill sets can we bring to bear um, to either transform it, um, alleviate it, purify it, or whatever? So I know there's a couple noodles I've thrown up against the wall here, but that's what comes well, to I mind. Think, you know, I think in terms of obstacles, there's you know there's mainly in the West we're dealing with inner obstacles. Most of us have the conditions that we can practice if we want to. We can set aside half an hour, an hour or more a day to practice if we really are motivated. So, you know, that's the outer conditions that we can. uh, So most of us are able to alleviate any obstacles due to that. I, you know, had two kids and I practiced even though I was a mother and it wasn't a problem. So the inner obstacles are more like doubt, um, self-hatred, or self-loathing, self-criticism, anger, you know, these kinds of things, not really believing in oneself, not believing that you can actually do it, feeling unworthy. So all these kinds of things are inner obstacles, which you know, practice really helps with, but my feeling is that if we combine it with psychotherapy as needed, then it's much faster. It works much faster than just relying on the practice. And I think kind of like you were saying, if we go at something just from one direction for a long time, you know, really hard or something, it can kind of get stuck and coming at it from another direction can just help loosen everything up and remove the obstacles and things can flow. So that's my feeling that, and that the Dharma really basically presupposed a level of psychological health already being there. And 
because our society is so fractured and families have been so fractured and there's been so much pain in families and, and all of this, I think working through some of these issues, you know, even in the initial stages of being involved with Dharma or before one comes to Dharma can be really, really helpful. And also they didn't have self-hatred in the Himalayas. Right, And, you know, when some of us started noticing in the 80s that there was this tremendous amount of self-hatred among Westerners and it was in and in the practitioners of the Dharma, that this was a problem that people were having to learn to overcome. And um, I think it was maybe Sharon Salzberg, somebody shared this with the Dalai Lama, that, that this was the case. And because we all started realizing this around the same time. And he said it took him years of mulling this over to even understand what was being talked about. It was so far from anything he could even imagine, you know, and I'm sure there were a few people in Tibetan culture or Himalayan cultures that had that kind of thing, or, you know, and I think in more stratified societies such as Japan or China it was probably more prevalent, but within the Himalayan cultures, they just didn't have that. So this is, this, this is something that needs to be worked with because this is a huge obstacle to awakening. And it's highly uncomfortable. You know, it's not a pleasant state of being. So that, I think, you know, I don't think the Buddha was really addressing that. He was already presupposing that people were basically pretty healthy psychologically. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's a mental illness, but it's, you know, it's it's something that needs to be addressed and worked through and we need to come to some sort of self-love. Yeah. It's not a narcissistic thing at all. And I think, you know, it has nothing to do with narcissism. Yeah. This is, and this is where the great contribution of developmental studies and, and, and levels of development and structures come into play. And so I, I'm, I'm wondering if for, for teachers who may be listening, what advice you might give to them um, in terms of, when is it appropriate? You you, went, you said PRN as needed. So for someone who may not be trained in, in the psychological world, it's very easy. Sociologists talk about it. Uh, uh, Laman is single action bias. You know, you can put all your eggs in this basket and it's going to deal with it. So I think it takes a, a fair amount of openness and humility for a, a teacher or a meditation instructor to say this is this is something that could um Use the the scout the talent skills of a body therapist, uh, psych, psych, uh, psychologist, psychiatrist, and the like. So, what advice could you give to a meditation instructor, a teacher, for working with this, being humble and open to the possibility of a student just like being really stuck? And instead of saying, "Ah, you're not meditating hard enough," or you have to go into retreat, saying, "Hey, wait a second, we need to um, open our skill set here a little bit." Yeah, I think that it's really helpful to know some psychotherapists that a teacher can refer to, people that are practitioners in Buddhist or a different tradition if teachers are from a different tradition, in your own tradition or in another spiritual tradition where they can understand in-depth spiritual practice and um you know, know some different people so that you have somebody to refer to that's not going to tell, you know, just think the student is weird for practicing meditation or becoming a Sufi or whatever it is, you know. 
So I think I think that's number one is to have some people to meet some people in one's own community that can be referred to, and and then when we see that students, you know, are, um, well, first of all, if they're reporting in interviews that you know a whole lot of stuff is coming up that's very painful to do with their childhood or their parents, or if we see that they're acting out in certain ways, like they're having problems with other students, you know, um, or if they're having really strong feelings of lack of worthiness or self-esteem and things like this, then we, we can see these. I think we can suggest then at that time that they, you know, and then if we have, if we know people, we can give a few names to people, you know, you know, as, we try to at least give, you know, three names if possible. So people have, we're not just funneling people to one person, but, you know, and then some people have their own resources and already know various therapists in the community and they can, you know, go to whoever they find. So. Super important. And how does this, this sort of thing, um, you talk about, you work as a, a spiritual counselor. How, how is that different from a therapist? I mean, how is spiritual counseling different from psychotherapy? Well, spiritual counseling isn't necessarily getting into in doing in-depth analysis or in-depth therapy, you know, a whole therapy about the person's whole childhood and whole life or something like that. That's how I see the difference. You know, there's it's definitely goes into some psychological issues. But it's it's not an in-depth therapy of to do with the person's entire life, or it's not an in-depth analysis or anything like that. That's really helpful to know. You and so I think maybe now it's time to come back and 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 throw a a, a really targeted dart at your great contribution with the um, Yidam with. Uh, Deity yoga, even though you don't like that term, this this amazing spiritual technology, which it's so core um, to the, to the tantra traditions, and I think from the outside, um, somewhat baffling, and even for practitioners for a while as they get into it, misunderstood. So, talk to us a little bit about the centrality of the place of of Tara in your own personal life, and and why um, you have chosen to write and teach on her so eloquently. And then the, just the overall relationship to this this amazing dare I use the word spiritual technology this amazing gift from from the Buddhist tradition about using this particular approach to working with mind and heart. Well, I think just to set the stage in a certain sense, you know, Buddha fully and completely awakened, and there have been other Buddhas, you know, in the um, scripture that have been have awakened before him. And really, um, awakened mind is present and in all of us and pervades everything. You know, Dharmakaya pervades everything. The awakened mind of of pervades everything. And peop- so just like in the, I'm going to make an analogy here, but just like in the Christian tradition, God sent his son, Jesus, to come and be among people. From out of this formless, awakened mind that's ever present 
in everywhere, various um, awakened beings manifest on, on the Sabogakaya level, on the level where they could be seen in visions, and they manifest on a in a human level as teachers sometimes in something. So, or you know, teachers walk the path and become realized in in um, a certain lifetime. So Tara both has a story of eons ago when she was a human being and she awakened. And she also has a story where she was more, you know, magically born out of um, Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya. And at any rate, she's the most famous, uh, along with Kuan Yin, who's really the feminine form of um, Avalokiteshvara. Tara is the most famous of all the female Buddhas. And I developed a really close relationship with her in three-year retreat because we did her practice every morning. It was one of the ones that we continued through the entire retreat, did quite a long Tara practice every morning. And Tara is like the mother that, you know, the, the all awakened mother that we all wish we had. And, and one can both have a relationship with her as a child to a mother or a friend to friend, a mentor to a mentee. And then at the same time, because of the way tantric practice uh, works, at a certain point, Tara, who we're praying to, having a dialogue with, you know, a relationship, culting a relationship with, at some point she dissolves into us and we become Tara. And it's this inseparability that it's very hard for us to imagine our own awakening. And in a certain sense, once we can walk into it through Yidam practice, through developing a very close relationship with an awakened being and then becoming inseparable with that awakened being, it helps open the doors to us actually walking into the awakened part of ourselves. This is exactly where I wanted to take this because on, on one level, I mean, we, we can relate to Tara uh, in, in two ways. One as a uh, seemingly external agency, uh, a, a, a non-human intelligence, superhuman intelligence, like somewhat external to us. But on another level, she represents a, a, a latent archetype within us of this particular principle. So maybe say a little bit more about this. It's fantastic. I like to think of it as like we're this we're being sandwiched between both the the unawakened but um, uh, evoked internal archetype and the seeming external um, agency of Tara. So can you say a little bit more about the relationship between inner and outer Tara and, and Tara principle along these lines? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um... You know, as we open to either a teacher or an awakened being such as Tara, we begin to experience their awakening. As the relationship progresses and we get to know our teacher or we get to know an awakened being such as Tara, we can actually start to experience awakened presence. And that helps us to open to our own awakened presence that we are totally not in touch with. It's like a channel gets carved. It's like a pathway opens up. So 
you know, I think this is why people love to be around the Dalai Lama. You know, even people that have no interest in spirituality have been deeply, deeply moved by him and deeply, you know, enjoyed and rejoiced in his presence and being able to be with him. You know, a bunch of scientists at Stanford or Harvard or whatever, you know, who never really had a mystical interest or anything, but they just were so elated to be in his presence. It's because through a human being or a Sambhogakaya being, these visionary beings, being able to open to their presence, it's like we begin to experience something different in ourselves that we never experienced in ourselves before which is this awakened presence. It's like it opens the pathway to that, as I said before, inside of ourself. It's a mirroring of a certain sense of what is essentially true within ourself, that we are awakened and that we just are out of touch with that. So that's um, that's how I experience it. And this is where devotion comes in because devotion the right kind of, you know, with the right kind of um, object for the devotion or the right kind of approach to it, um, we open ourselves to awakened experience. And so say more, if you would, um, this is so great. I, this, I mean, the, these Yidam practices have been central to my life for three decades. I mean, I, I, every morning I do, I don't, I do a Manjushri practice every morning. I have a deep connection to so many of these amazing um, practices. Talk to us a little bit about the role of the imaginal here um, and, and, uh, and using the power of imagination to catalyze this kind of awakening. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, it's sort of like fake it till you make it or something. Exactly. As we can imagine in the beginning, and this is really important, I think that you brought this up. In the beginning of doing this type of meditation practice, it is imagining. We are imagining Tara, for example, in front of us. We're imagining her presence. We're, we're talking in the uh, liturgy about her various qualities and activities and, you know, we're experiencing transmission from her, maybe, you know, a stream of nectar comes down, elixir, you know, through her hand down into us or something like this. So there's this interchange going on, and it's all in our imagination. And eventually what happens is, you know, it sounds like you could be going crazy, but actually not, um, because these are thousands of years old practices, which many people have awakened doing. Um, eventually, what happens is that it becomes much more real. And, you know, people used to ask Kala Rinpoche when I was with him all the time, are Yidams real or are they archetypes? And he said, they're as real as you are. Exactly. Or unreal as you are. Yeah, they're as real or unreal as you and I. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. So that's pretty darn real. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, we know on one level that there's no self and no other, but, you know, it's still pretty real to us. And so the fact that we exist and don't exist and that it's beyond existing or non-existing you know, is obviously one of the great koans of Buddhism, but but developing a relationship, these beings 
do exist in that certain sense as we exist. And there can be a real live transmission. And um, so the imagination gives way to an actual, quote unquote, real experience. Fantastic. And, and I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this, but I've noticed more and more. I, I just did a program with uh, Tenzin Wangyal in, in um, Virginia, and, and we we're talking a little bit about this topic. And a question came up in the uh, with a group, and it didn't take very long for for me to assess that this person has what's called aphantasia, which is the inability to visualize. So, talk to us a little bit about, if, if you can, about this is my languaging, the the um, importance of feelingization. That that it's not just this cognitive cartoon. Amitabh Rinpoche once said, "I love this." You may have heard this. Cartoon visualization brings about cartoon realization, which is fantastic. And so one way to bring the cartoon to life is through soma, through somatization, through feelingization. So talk to us more about the, the embodied visceral somatic and therefore affective component, that there is this devotional, that, that it's not just the cerebral mental construct, there's actually um, uh, affective components to it of her warmth and her love and, and that sort of thing. So Right. And what's been taught and what, what I'm always... Um, emphasizing as well is that the most important thing is to actually feel feel the presence of the awakened one and whether if you can't visualize that's okay you can open to the feeling of them being present and over time again this becomes stronger and stronger and so it is tantra is a full body experience. The the body, the mind, the emotions are never separate in Tantra. They're all there right together. And so a feeling um, of the presence, I mean, this has to do, say, for again, with using Tara as an example, studying about Tara, we can learn that, you know, she is the all-loving mother. She has this incredible patience. She's able to remove fear. She can remove anxiety, you know, through prayer to her, through reciting her mantra. Um, she can remove other kinds of obstacles. And and she can transmit to us full awakened body, speech, and mind. So, again, if the if it's done through feeling, the feeling can be imagined too. And um, until it actually begins to be real. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all have kind of an idea of what um, an awakened mother would feel like or be like. And we can, we can imagine that. And, um, you know, and the practices are so skillful, like, um, you know, like simply imagining that from Tara's hand streams down this liquid light as as elixir and it goes through the crown of our head into our body, filling our entire body with healing energy. Imagining that, feeling that is very powerful. Beautiful. I so, mean, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead I was just going to say that as a child, something happened to me which made me feel uncomfortable. And I, did a practice like this that I just thought up myself. And when I was seven years old at the end of my bed, every night before going to bed, I would have Jesus come and Jesus would put his hand on my head and stream down healing energy into me. And I did that every night until I felt like I was completely healed. 
That was really, really great. So I can imagine people are listening and going, wow, that sounds great. This is really cool. Wow, where, where can I do this? So so the difference between maybe Sutra and Tantra, Tara, uh, if people are really here going, wow, I really want to do a Tara practice, what, what can they do? Where can they go? Well, um, yeah, I mean, they we have our center, Sukha City Foundation. We do um, a lot online. So there's there's that. Um, uh, people can look into Tibetan Buddhist centers in your area and, again, really try to assess what's going on, if everything feels okay, if it seems like the place is in integrity and it's wholesome and there's not funny business going on or anything, and if it really feels right. Uh, most of the Tibetan centers from all the lineages teach Tara practice. And so... Um, you know, there's a number of, of avenues. and uh, But you can't really, what I'm hearing you saying is you can't really learn this from a book. There has to be some personal communication, some instruction. I'm say more about. Oh, yeah, this is true. Now, it's true with Tantra. It's said that it needs to be transmitted. So it needs to come through a living lineage. So you can read about Tara just to find out more, but then you actually need the transmission of a teacher to actually transmit the practice to you and to explain it and everything. You know, books can go a certain distance, but they can't go all the way enough to really give you a full-on practice. And then with all the deities that are there, like, like, you know, you walk into what I was saying earlier, the temples with, oh my gosh, there's so many deities in there. It's like overwhelming. How, How does one pick their their yidam or does the yidam so to speak pick them how how does this kind of choice and resonance um, come about is there some magic well, I, think, I think um a lot of times it just depends on what you're really drawn to and if somebody goes through a whole progressive training they get introduced to different yidams and then they they have an affinity very strongly you know, with one of the ones that they've been introduced to, or if they haven't been introduced to somebody and they feel a really big affinity, they can ask for an empowerment or transmission into that particular uh, yidam. But it's in the final analysis, it's really an internal knowing. And usually, you know, it's something you might want to talk with your teacher about. So there almost seems to be this kind of karmic self-selection thing going on. I mean, there's there's a little bit more magic involved than someone who's coming in off the street and saying, ah, oh, you know, I want to learn about Tara, right? I mean, there's this kind of... That's know, where it starts. Yeah. <laughs> That's where it starts, yeah. So I, I want to come back. We we talked about, um, just to, to circle back in on a couple of things here before we we uh, start to close up a little bit. What is, the in, in your um, experience and in your view the role uh, of these modern um, agents of transmission. Like for instance, um, there's all this incredible technology these days, hemi-sync and, and all kinds of really cool neurofeedback things. And I mean, really some of it's pretty sophisticated stuff. And then um, psychedelics. Oh my gosh, I, I think that's the Renaissance these days around that is, is extraordinary. So I, I'm curious how, where you come down on those sorts of things, because again, it's part of the, the cultural translation thing. Are these, in fact, legitimate, skillful means for the Western world? Or is it like, you know, chemical mysticism, spiritual bypassing? What What do you see as the role, the promise and peril of, of these Western 
um, potential skillful means. Well, I think the neuro stuff can be extremely helpful if people are drawn to that, you know, and it's, it's basically not dangerous. Um, I myself come from a psychedelic background. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 60s, so definitely had psychedelic experiences and used it even back in those days as a teenager. You know, I used it in a very spiritual way and often meditated on psychedelics or something. So I had a lot of openings um, in that way. Um, so I think psychedelics can be very profound aids on the path, but they're they're riskier. You know, they're they have a lot more risk, and so they need to be uh, used properly with the proper kind of guidance and the proper type of set and setting and all of that, and not used not overly used that that's one way they can become dangerous if if you take too much psychedelics in a short period of time or you know that kind of thing and it also depends on the person's psyche some people they're really not good for but for other people they've been life-changing so you know it's it's something to be approached with caution but it can be helpful on the path i don't feel like even though i had tremendous insights on psychedelics and actually opened me up to wisdom from previous lifetimes and that kind of thing as well. Um, it, I think to get really lasting change, lasting transformation, then one really needs deep practice. That's my own feeling. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the classic conversion from of states to traits or into that left from now. Right because otherwise you become a state junkie right you're just shopping around to, for another experience right yeah. states to traits yeah or experience to station you know sufis call it like yeah a state or a station you know where it's really fully embodied in you well one thing you know I, I, because of your unique situation um if your demographic is anything like mine, and it's fantastic, I, I probably when I do my programs, 60 to 70% of the people that attend are, are women, which is fantastic. And, and so maybe a little bit more specific to the, to the women who are listening, and if it's even appropriate to separate out this advice from, from men who might be listening, but because of, because of your capacities, any particular advice um, to women who may be listening about your experience with the Dharma altogether, your experience with, with Vajrayana, your experience with teachers, um, things to be um, aware of, things to be um, you know, not necessarily paranoid about, but we're all acutely aware of what, what happens, what continues to happen at, at the seemingly highest levels of these communities where entire communities are devastated by these sorts of things. So can you speak with a uh, heart-to-heart level with some of the female um, participants who might be listening and what kind of advice and counsel you might give? I think, you know, you listeners may have noticed that I, I'm actually a very devotional person, and yet we should never leave our discerning intelligence at the door. And all of my teachers, all the greatest masters, completely supported, you know, like keeping your own intelligence intact. So in other words, we have to go into situation with our eyes wide open. And number one, anything to do with sexuality is an equal playing field. No one is higher or lower when it comes down to sexuality. So you don't need to engage in anything sexual unless it's something you really want to do. 
there's no reason why a teacher should strong arm any student into a sexual relationship. And there's no nothing in Dharma that says that you should acquiesce to that if you don't feel like it or you don't want to. It's equal. So I think there's this balance of both having been open, which is really the beginnings of devotion, having an open heart and an open mind, but also, you know, really having your discerning intelligence on board all the time. And if things are looking funny to investigate and see if really funny things are going on, are things being swept under the rug? Are people willing to talk about things? Are there seemingly really unhealthy things going on in the sangha or with the teacher or anything like that? We need to really be aware of this. And devotion doesn't mean that we wouldn't really question a teacher or really speak to them frankly about our concerns. If a teacher is a good teacher, they want to hear our concerns. They want frank discussions. They're open for that. Now, it may not be their culture to have that. They may be a male from Asia, and they may not have a culture of speaking openly, like you brought up yourself, Andrew. You know, they may not be used to that. But if it's done, you know, in a way where one is sincere and bringing up and they don't want to talk about certain things, then they're not really a viable teacher for the West. Too many things can go wrong. We So this is what I would say to women in particular, since women have particular vulnerabilities, you know, and feel like they, they have to do things because the teacher said they should. There's nothing you ever have to do, you know, in terms of ordinary life, which sexuality falls under, or any of these different things, you know, you don't have to give up your family. You don't have to have sex. You don't have, you know, um, sure. And I think, you know, it's better if teachers, you know, give suggestions anyway, like a suggestion. This is, you know, I think this would be a really good practice for you. You know, what do you think? You know, but Teachers should not be in the business of running their students' lives or telling them what to do. I'm kidding. It's so idiot devotion. I mean, it, 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 perhaps a strong term, but perhaps not. There's, it's, it's such a tricky thing in this business because, as you know, surrender and using the power of devotion, which is really just the power of love harnessed for awakening. I mean, this is the rocket fuel of the Vajrayana. Devotion is arguably the most important ingredient of the Vajrayana. And so for people that don't have perhaps structure um psychological maturity they may be developed along one line of growth but a little bit arrested in another we get these sorts of things so um idiot devotion i think is is a a, a colossal um near enemy of genuine devotion that you feel yes. like surrender to these energies which often then come from these these cultural patriarchal containers which which really are just completely inappropriate at best in the western world right Absolutely. I completely agree. I was almost going to bring up that term myself earlier today too, idiot devotion. It's devotion. We still have all our discernment on board. All the faculties. Yeah. And not be afraid to ask the tough questions and and not be afraid to go to a a seemingly senior student and saying, Hey, this is what's happening. And, And then again, just your BS meter should be a little bit on red alert. Right. Our BS meter should be turned on. Yeah. Be willing, yeah. 
Salama Paulin, um, thank you so much. As we start to close up, um, any final questions uh, that I didn't ask? Anything that you want to, to convey and, sh and share with us, like the things that you may be currently working on, saying a little bit more about your marvelous organization, uh, Suka City Foundation and the like? Anything else that you want our listeners to be aware of? No, I think um, they can Google sukacity.org or um, I have my own personal website too, which is in the process of starting to update lomapaulin.org. But I think what I want to say is that we live in an unprecedented time where so much is available to us spiritually from so many traditions. And there's very authentic teachers and teachings out there. And so it's a tremendous opportunity for us to avail ourselves of this situation. And it's just joyful to see so many plants in the garden that are and the flowers of all these different plants of so many different traditions. And to really, you know, if you're spiritually interested or seeking to really follow your nose and see what scent is drawing you and really, really pursue. And, and possibly, you know, we always say it's good to practice in one tradition. So you have a solid, cohesive practice, but it's also good to study other traditions to kind of get a broader viewpoint, which is very healthy to have a broader viewpoint. And on the essential issues the deep mystics all agree throughout all traditions. You know, the, the true contemplatives, the true mystics, there's deep, deep, commonly shared wisdom and um, knowledge, you know, that comes from these paths. And that, so I think it's just a great time and um, so much richness to be um, shared, so much richness to avail ourselves of. Yeah, spot on. And it's one of the things I so appreciate about you and your work um, is the, I mean, my language, of course, but diversify your portfolio, right? I mean, just just invest in the psychological arena, psycho, in the body work and in the heart work and in the so-called spiritual work, so that then you you cast yourself in your skillful means across the complexity of the human condition and, and not take kind of false allegiance in one particular bandwidth or tradition, because I think that's where even the power of tradition can backfire, that it can become ossified and it's my way or the highway kind of thing. And we're in this information age, there's there's tremendous potentiality here. Um, if we keep our eyes wide open, we pay attention and, and then, you know, have, have some guidance, have someone hopefully like you or others who have a little bit of mileage under their belt who can um, just counsel us so we don't waste time in detours and dead ends. Absolutely. Uh, so, Lama Paulton, thank you so much. Um, we'll post the links to your to your uh, uh, websites um, below this, and and I personally look forward to future encounters with you and, and future um, offerings that you have. You you've made such a contribution to to Dharma in the Western world. I, for one, have been a big long term fan, and so personally, it's just a total delight to to connect with you on this level and share your great gifts to my community. It's really an honor. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, delight to see you, and hope we get to meet soon in the future. That would be a delight. All the best. Take care. Okay, you too. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. And a special thanks to Lama Paulden for sharing her remarkable wisdom and knowledge with us. We hope you're enjoying the Edge of Mind podcast as much as we enjoy making it. Please do spread the word. Rate the podcast, review it, and subscribe to it if you haven't already. It's one way to invite more people into this community and into conversations in the fields of science, philosophy, psychology, spirituality, and the arts. 